thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to Wellness Women Radio with women's health experts, Dr. Ashley Bond, the pregnancy and birthing guru, and the queen of hormone imbalances, the period whisperer herself, Dr. Andrea Huddleston. They're raising the bar for women's health by bringing you the most up-to-date health and wellness information to live your best life. Now, onto the show. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. Um, I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Uh, Ashley and I both get the Wholesome Box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. Uh, so it's, you know, completely consistent with, you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, uh, as well as a vegan box too. Now, we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try Dinner Twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is, but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Wellness Women Radio. Or it could be today or this morning, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> it's really, really lovely to have you back on board with us. So uh, I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And thank you for joining us again. Make sure that you are following us on social media. We are The Wellness Women uh, on Facebook, The Wellness Women Official on Instagram. And we swear one of these days we are going to be much more active on that. But you can also follow us on our own personal account. So Ashley is Dr. Ashley Bond on everything. I am The Period Whisperer on Facebook, DrAndrea.xo on Instagram, and I think Dr. Andrew Huddleston on YouTube. So um, if I... If that is different, then someone please correct me about that. <laughs> uh, but thanks again for joining us. Um, this is a, an interesting topic that when um, we were sort of riffing on what we were going to cover for um, tonight's episode and we were sort of throwing around ideas and, um, Ash, I love what you you text me. You're like, why don't we talk about the real, you know, epidemic, which is this you know, insulin resistance and chronic inflammation and the links that that has with absolute poor health, including poor immune health. And maybe this is the stuff that we really should be talking about. Yeah, well, it was triggered by reading some research, obviously, you know, the world is in grips of a COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, when there's evidence coming out suggesting death rates are higher in a population um, of obesity, chronic inflammation, 
type 2 diabetes markers, I was like, hmm, that's interesting, right? Because we found that in our own work, chronic inflammation underpins so many physiological conditions uh, and the development of lifestyle conditions like type 2 diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and so on and so on. And the list really goes on. So it really came as no, like I thought it was so interesting how it was like, wow, there's groundbreaking, surprising evidence. And I thought, I'm really not that surprised by it, to be honest, because, you know, a chronically inflamed body is clearly going to be less effective, less efficient at dealing with any challenge, including virus and bacteria. So I'm not surprised at all to find increasing rates or, or prevalence amongst populations with higher rates of chronic inflammation and insulin resistance. So that's where I was like, but hang on, shouldn't we be talking about that? Because if that's contributing to a higher death rate, isn't the underpinning uh, concern that we've got a global population that are insulin resistant? Uh, yes, and we know that with time it's getting worse. And we know that also as people age, just your fasting glucose levels um, and your insulin sensitivity tends to change and worsen. So this is not something that just tends to get better with time. This is something that actually requires um, attention. And I think that most of the women that I see in practice who have got some pretty funky hormonal things going on, that this picture of absolutely chronic inflammation is something that we see in almost all of them and then coupled with either at the same time that insulin resistance or it will be flowing on from that. And it doesn't mean that they have to have, say, polycystic ovarian syndrome, but it could be a whole host of other symptoms that they're having that is causing complete disruption for their whole system. I absolutely love the way you call it a symptom because for me, type 2 diabetes is a symptom, not a diagnosis. And everyone likes to have a label for a condition. But for me, if someone said, oh, yeah, type 2 diabetic, that's just a package deal symptomology of what their body's doing internally and what's actually going wrong with their insulin handling. And that uh, is screaming alarm bells as to the lifestyle and the nature of the, say, for example, epigenetic triggers, because we do know that there are genetic components to this, but there's also environmental components. Um, so where was I going with that? Because I remember thinking, why am I getting frustrated with social media at the moment? And I think some of the things... What's <laughs> the thing that's frustrating you about social media today, Ash? Because uh, I know there's many, many, many frustrations with it. But, uh, yeah, tell me, tell me the one today. I think it was uh, the, the, what I was also witnessing, what I would call the the skinny fat uh, epidemic going on as well. The fact that we're witnessing lots and lots of publicly profiled women, great accounts, looking amazing, shots, shots, shots of all these gorgeous, you know, women doing all these uh, amazing bodybuilding, bodyworks things. But what we do know is behind the scenes, they're dealing with metabolic syndromes. They're dealing with PCOS. They're dealing with uh, other signs of insulin resistance. So you can actually be skinny and still be insulin resistant and that's a big concept to get your head around because we always have this assumption and particularly the scientific community for many decades had an assumption that being overweight or obese was your key risk factor for insulin resistance but we now know that's not true uh, so when I see people promoting certain lifestyles or certain diet types and thinking well it's all very nice they look skinny but that's you know a rubbishy high carbohydrate diet in terms of it's just 
quick glucose rushes going on to the body all the time. Are and you talking about the smoothie bowls, Ash? Ah, <laughs> uh, sort of, and the shaky shake things, and the yeah. you know the packet mix things, and the vegetarian diet, yeah, industrial seed oils, and yeah, yeah. And so we know full well that those women, unfortunately, may look good on the outside, but they're going to be chronically inflamed at a cellular level, which puts them at the same risk as an obese or an overweight person. Uh, for insulin resistance leading to diabetes. And I think that's, for a lot of people, quite surprising. Uh, So I wanted to sort of have a chat about that because I found it really... yeah, frustrating, again, that word, that people are complaining about health choices or wanting to get vaccines or all these sorts of things, but they're not dealing with their own body and their own health in a way that promotes health. Mm-hmm. And you can't be going in and getting shots thinking they're going to save you from terrible diseases if you are systemically and chronically inflamed it just doesn't make sense to me it's completely unscientific so um i'm happy to to be challenged on that but i've i've seen the research and i'm really comfortable saying that obviously i'm not anti-vaccine never have been but it's more to do with why don't we take the responsibility and place it where it belongs mm-hmm. um so yeah that's just yeah. just my two cents worth tonight because i am a little bit fed up with some of the, the things i'm seeing and reading and thinking why are we tiptoeing around this this environmental dietary lifestyle aspect to this? Why are we just going looking for the golden pill, the golden shot to solve the world's problems right now when we should be investing that kind of money, that kind of resource, that kind of public attention to something that would actually make a huge ripple effect, not just now on our current generations, but all the children we're going to have in the future. Um, so anyway, rant over. <laughs> uh, no, but Ash, that's a really important rant because I think that's something that's been really severely lacking from you know this pandemic has been going on for over 12 months now and how much information has been coming out from governing bodies about um you know diet and lifestyle and exercise and you know timeless health principles that we know and even things that are so simple like vitamin d and vitamin d like has been really well and thoroughly researched particularly in relation to COVID 19 to have such positive benefits um, and have you know really good protective effects as well. And why aren't why isn't that information being shared and touted? And why aren't there you know government initiatives mandating a healthy lifestyle? Um, it just is is something that's really really frustrating. Which means the sick people are going to keep getting sicker, and you know uh, everyone else is as well. By the looks of the way that you know our diet and lifestyles and everything else is going, it's it's really really sad and. We do absolutely have an obesity epidemic. You know, the um, statistics for obesity at the moment are well above one-third of the population now, um, which I think is really, really sad. And we know that inflammation is one of the biggest drivers for metabolic syndrome. So, you know, part of that picture of um, obesity that is also um, leading to type 2 diabetes as well. And that insulin resistance is that driver of obesity too. Um, but you also don't have to be obese to be insulin resistant. Yeah, that absolutely. Was a terrible segue back to cycle back to what you were talking about before, Ash. <laughs> 
I just went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. And the consideration, because obviously we're always looking and targeting our thoughts towards women's health uh, because yeah, that's our that's our jam. That's what we do. And, again, of course, yeah. yeah, and, of course, chronic inflammation. We look at so many women uh, dealing with things like endocrine metabolic conditions, uh, including thyroid dysfunction, and that's a big one. That's a clear connection to chronic inflammation. So, again, it's very simplistic to label things and to to give everyone a diagnosis so that they've got an understanding of, uh, oh, I've got this condition. But if only we could underpin that and say, did you know chronic inflammation's driving source root cause of the initiation of this cascade towards this condition? And there's so much more control you have uh, beyond pharmacological intervention to actually help to reverse or to change the course of that disease process. So, yeah, the big one is to realise that if we can understand this insulin-resistant concept, understand that you don't have to look overweight and look unhealthy to be insulin resistant, then we're sort of making headway on this problem. And hopefully women, you're sitting here listening, thinking, I wonder if I'm inflamed. I would love people to ask that question. <laughs> you know, I'd love to say, I wonder if I'm inflamed. What, how would I know if I'm inflamed? What are the markers of inflammation? It's really hard, I think, to expect symptoms to tell us if we're inflamed because by the time we're symptomatic, we've already bypassed that inflammation stage. We're now moving into disease process stages. So I would suggest uh, to consider inflammation as a marker, really some of the really early predictive uh, elements of inflammation and potential damage that can come from that comes from blood works. So um, if we consider blood works as a gold standard of uh, early detection, I think that's probably the key word I want to say because a lot of the time we're reactive in our, our detection. It's once we've got a problem, then we test the blood, then we say there's a problem and then we have a diagnosis mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to preventative or proactive blood works to say, hang on, have we got some early signs here of changes that could indicate we're moving in the direction of insulin resistance, of prediabetes, of diabetes? Because by the time we've tested the blood or we've tested uh, our bodies for signs of diabetes, it's too far too late. We've already got insulin resistance. We've already got damage to the the insulin signaling pathways. So, uh, yeah. Amen, sister. Um, (laughs) uh, I just had to do like put my hands up in the air there because Ash, I absolutely like am picking up what you're putting down. And um, I I don't know if I've said this in a podcast before, so forgive me if I have, but I had um, a patient recently who we were looking at um, some tracking, some progress and her um, conventional um, sort of medical practitioner was really resistant to doing um, the testing and not because anything that we were testing was left field. It was all very, you know, stock standard um, health checks, but was was resistant to doing it because, um, and in her words, if you go looking for something, you're always going to find it. Isn't that just the absolute worst attitude to someone being proactive and preventative with their health? Like just because you've got a cute little saying about something or there's, you know, you've got a catchphrase, I just think absolutely completely disempowers a patient who's trying to be proactive with their health. Correct. And I believe as well, part of that statement relates to fear, relates to the idea that if I do find out, do I have to do something? Is it going to be hard not wanting to? It's the whole, you know, head in the sand approach. Um, yep. I'd rather not know. <laughs> 
then have to know and do the hard work. So unfortunately for a lot of people, they will wait for symptoms. They will wait for crises in their life before they decide to do the hard work. But wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to spend years trying to get our health back if we can, and I say if, because sometimes the damage can be significant enough that it's more permanent in nature, um, why don't we test early? So let's talk about some of the key tests for this because I just thought I'll jump in quickly, you know, in this uh, episode to give you some direction straight away because hopefully by now you say to go hmm insulin resistance that doesn't sound so great that wouldn't be good for me I hope I don't have it and what sort of things should I be looking for how would I know so I've had a little look around some of the summaries there are really great I did find something online um, I don't know if you haven't heard of him but there's drjockers.com he's a, a website with lots of great health information um, but there's a top five blood tests for inflammation and they are fasting insulin the HGA1C, so hemoglobin A1C, C-reactive protein, serum ferritin, and red blood cell width, RBW. So these are tests. So let's just talk about the fasting insulin because that's probably like your number one standard test to see where you're at uh, at that point in time and obviously clinical ranges and optimal ranges to give you an idea of wh- where you want to stay. Uh, most people have heard of staying under five for fasting insulin, but let's talk about what that means and why. So fasting insulin level tests, uh, these are really valuable in starting to detect levels of inflammation in the body because insulin is the hormone that's produced and stored in the pancreas. Now, insulin helps transfer glucose from the blood to the cells. So I say that right? Yes. That's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm picturing my, you know, you just do those like biochemistry diagrams, like, hang on, it does this to this. Um, yeah, so it puts the key into the lock that allows the cell to use glucose as energy. That's right. So it moves glucose from your bloodstream into like your liver cells, your fat cells, or your skeletal muscle. So essentially insulin dictates what your body does with calories. Thank you. Or That's carbohydrates. A, yeah. a much prettier way of saying it. So we're, we're, <laughs> no, no, you're on the right track. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my visual, my visualization at this time of night is getting a bit, a bit sloppy. Like, no, no, I've got that right. And I'm it's like, funny when you're drawing pictures in the air, but I'm like, Ash, this is audio. They can't see what you're drawing. <laughs> so. Yeah. When the body recognizes that the blood sugar is elevating, then the pancreas releases insulin. So this is uh, this is why testing fasting insulin can be so helpful. Um, if you've got things like high fasting insulin that it can indicate metabolic syndrome um, it's going to indicate things like early detection of insulin resistance because it's starting to see a rise in this obviously fasting the fasting insulin and it's quite a good thing to track over time so if you had one of these every couple of years you could very comfortably start to track and see if you've maintained if you're rising as age and time goes on because then you want to make intervention steps before you exceed optimal range um, because by the time people uh, you know insulin resistance there they can be as high as 20s in the uh, in the units and we really do want to stay under five so yeah too little too late is often the consequence of testing late and i think that's what we're trying to get at tonight is if we could be more proactive in our health uh then these concepts around insulin resistance against chronic inflammation leading us to susceptibility to conditions acute conditions and even to something as this global pandemic is highlighted to us COVID-19 has clearly got a predisposition for acutely inflamed cells, um, then I think we're putting our, our future health at the forefront and we're protecting and safeguarding ourselves from any other pandemic that might come along. Um, yeah. So 
<laughs> so yeah, I, I guess I'm looking at it more that way, thinking, well, clearly COVID-19 is not going to be the last thing that's going to come along. Not in my lifetime, it's unlikely because we're seeing such an evolution of uh, bacterial and viruses, even just some, some simple things like uh, antibiotic resistance bacteria. That should be concerning for people. That should be real alarm bell stuff. But uh, unfortunately, unless it's you with that antibiotic-resistant bacteria, a lot of people don't do anything about it. They don't know anything about it, and they assume antibiotics are going to save them if they're sick. And the reality is that they're saving less people because it's not working. So how do we make our body uh, a less susceptible host for pathogenic bacteria and virus? And to do that, we lower our inflammation. Yeah? Yeah, I'm so with you. I'm just like, <laughs> where do we go? Um, yeah. Ash, this is, yeah, you are absolutely right. And the things that's causing all of these, the, you know, elevated inflammatory markers and everything else is unfortunately our diet and lifestyle. Yes. Um, you know, we can't really blame anyone else for this because this is stuff that we are most likely doing to ourselves. But also, the amazing thing with that is a lot of the time we actually have control of this and we can change it as well. Um, so, Ash, you were running through the inflammatory markers. So, you had um, fasting insulin, hemoglobin mm-hmm. A1C, yep. um, your CRP. So, um, the elevated CRP is um, a really good sign of acute inflammation. So, this is something that's happening recently or is going on right now. And um, even doing like a high sensitivity or an HS CRP is the most accurate because it's a really sensitive test, most accurate way of testing that. But not all GPs will want to do that off the bat. Um, And interestingly enough, for women who have severe PNS, they will always have elevated CRP as well. That's really interesting. I've seen the slogans around CRP, which they sort of say a simple blood test that can save your life because it has such a profound indication of the underlying concerns that could be causing inflammation. And these are often categorized in, you know, obviously cardiac events, so heart yes. disease cardiovascular event stroke uh, but also other conditions like Crohn's uh, they've even found elevated CRP and obstructive sleep apnea uh, rheumatoid arthritis cancer diabetes so again a really good baseline marker to just go down the rabbit hole and ask more questions if CRP mm-hmm. is elevated then you get to dig deeper if it's not then at least that's one test to rule out some of the more concerning underlying issues regarding why CRP could be elevated um, another cool one is serum ferritin and yes. yeah this is an interesting one because people are like huh testing iron would you I've had a ferritin test how does that have anything to do with inflammation uh, like CRP ferritin is an acute phase reactant meaning that a ferritin test can be really useful in detecting chronic disease processes mm-hmm. and when we have elevated ferritin it indicates inflammation often liver disease chronic infection or immune disorders and even some types of cancer can be detected detected with elevated serum ferritin so this uh, Mm. again is a good marker of whether the body is acting in normal homeostatic fashion or if there's something that's affecting it so uh it's and that's really important for women who have been iron deficient previously Mm -hmm. um or they've got all the clinical signs and symptoms of iron deficiency but their blood tests are showing um, sufficient ferritin mm. that could be inflammatory driven elevated ferritin, elevated and then driven same thing but inflammatory um, you know responses that show elevated ferritin so it's kind of like a fake ferritin reading 
um, or a fake iron reading for, um, you know, that's I can't think of a better way to describe it. But if your iron tests are not reflecting everything else that's going on in your body, it could be because of that. So absolutely checking other inflammatory markers to back that up is a good idea. Cool. And lastly was the red blood cell width, and this is Mm. called RDW. Uh, This reflects our overall inflammation and oxidative stress. So how this works is basically it expresses the variations in sizes of red blood cells, and this allows them to see whether they're maturing properly, um, if they're being affected by oxidative stress, and, yeah, super interesting to see if the body's not producing adequate and correctly sized and functioning red blood cells, then Mm. clearly we've got concerns concerns with certain uh, potential disease processes. So I like looking at ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate as well yes. as just being part of that inflammatory sort of picture. Mm. Um, that, but that's just, that's just me as well. But I think that those are awesome, Ash. So there's five or six markers um, to look for straight away. Yeah, so that's a simple, simple process to go to your doctor, talk about some of these tests, just ask for that question of I'm looking at keeping my health at the very best it can possibly be. I'm not expecting to find, you know, signs of sickness or illness, but I would like to test these things just to find out if I've got any early predictors or any early indicators that my body's not functioning as well as I think it is. I'd really like to know that now before I come in here and I'm sick and I'm ill and you're trying to fix me. And I think most great doctors would say, wow, okay, cool. Yeah, we can do that. Um, if you have pushback, I might be questioning whether that's the right doctor for me. If that was my doctor, I would hope that they'd understand how important those tests are because there are robust studies on these tests to show that they are early predictors, to show that they are really good indicators to use uh, and they can help to reduce the intervention rates or medication rates in individuals if we pick things up early. So again, as I would like to be with a doctor, I would love to let, you know, produce uh, happy, healthy patients with less medication. That would be my ideal goal. So I'm sure great doctors feel the same way. And that's why these tests are relatively inexpensive and very helpful in understanding our bodies inside out. So that should give us a good idea of, uh, yeah, inflammation and inflammatory markers. Um, what else do we want to talk about? I think some of the stuff was looking at, okay, so what would we do if we found out there was some elevation in those markers? If we saw that there was some early signs or we had robust, clear signs that we've got elevated inflammatory mm-hmm. markers, what are we going to do? Uh, do we go and start taking non anti-inflammatories to, <laughs> to try and di- drive down inflammation? Or do we say, hey, let's look at our, our diet lifestyle? Now, one of the interesting things that uh, always gets my goat, because uh, again, I've often talk about low-tox living and how all this stuff, environmental toxins. But one of the really big uh, unseen baddies in this picture is actually something called phthalates. And this is an environmental toxin. And it's been shown to increase adiposity, so increase our fat cells in the body. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, actually creates a mechanism to accelerate and perpetuate inflammation and insulin resistance. So I was really concerned when I was reading an article about how they did a study and they took two uh, two groups and used a dietary study, so organics, grass-fed, blah, 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 and mm-hmm. the other group were just kind of like your standard diet. And I'll get the number because it was really like, what the heck? Um, <laughs> where is my little little reference point here if i can't find it quickly then i'll have to uh 
circle back and put a link at the end of everything because uh, it was really kind of like wow but it was over 2000% increase in the organic group and they were totally confused as to about that, how that could possibly be and what they found was there was so many oh there you go 2377% jump over the course of the experiment in the valid exposure and I'm like what how is this possible this is uh, an organic local uh hadn't been touching packaging but what they were finding were just the simple processes for example organic milk it's still going to pass through tubes and pipes in the processing and it's picking up phthalates through that there was the production and packaging in herbs and spices and it was picking up and there's no detection methods there's no testing for it so the assumption that something's organic and safe is actually very untrue uh that shocked me a little bit because i have made that assumption i do make that assumption thinking i'm choosing organics it's got to be better for me but uh as I said, you can suspect it, but it's almost impossible to know if you have phthalates in your food, including in organics foods. So, um, oh my goodness, not, to, not to scare you off organics, um, but I think what what the comment there is to say we're we're putting our expectations around food being the the toxic cause of the foundations of these things but there's so many man-made chemicals that are contributing to this governments and regulation bodies have a responsibility to pull this crap in literally uh they have to shut these sorts of things down they need to make decisive action to prevent us being exposed to it like it's not our job to guess whether or not our organic produce has phthalates within it or on it Mm. how hard is that we're not scientists we don't have chem labs we can't test for these things so yeah i'm a big believer that if we took that serious uh route forward to protect human health then we would be really looking at the production um they did that with bpa you know the big uh big hoo-ha about bpa and its issues um manufacturers really smart they just switched over to bps guess what evidence is showing it's almost got the exact same biochemical effects on the human body as bpa so again we should have shut that door down long ago but uh just takes so long for regulatory bodies to say no to big manufacturers and uh corporate greed so that's totally gone the wrong direction um no that's okay uh i like it actually i love when you get on your little um soapbox or go down the rabbit hole the low tox living stuff because i yeah i totally understand and it's huge i think i'm cranky about it i think i just get cranky about it i'm just like i'm just so cranky we we can we can learn about these things and then all of a sudden we're being tricked we're being duped we're being deceived and that makes me cranky it's like hang on we're encouraging better choices but you're not allowing us to do that because you don't give us the the resources and opportunity to do so and then we're trying to resolve things like chronic inflammation uh insulin resistance and we're not able to because we literally can't avoid it in our environment then i feel like we're being conned (laughs) so um so I'd love to think we do our very best we can um, and, of course, you know, lobbying corporate level to make better better choices for us is really, really helpful. So, yeah, let's talk about how we can lower our inflammatory now that I've gone total rant about phthalates. <laughs> that was got, a really good segue back. You've got the idea that there are harmful chemical exposures that are going to cause chronic inflammation, so you need to be considering the the things around you, the things on you, the things you breathe in, uh, the chemicals that soaked on your clothing like any of these things we need to be considering the environmental exposures then we need to be considering diet so andrea i'll give you a moment (laughs) (laughs) rock and roll um i reckon that everything you've just talked about deserves its own podcast um and we will absolutely do that we'll absolutely cover that because 
I am really passionate about the connection between that and fertility potential. So we'll talk about that in another episode. But yeah. if we are looking at reducing our inflammation and improving our insulin sensitivity, um, obviously if we're starting with diet, this is you know, a really good, sensible place to start. And what we want to do is make sure that we're having as little glucose as physically possible because glucose is pro-inflammatory. Um, we know it causes an acute oxidative stress and inflammatory stress reaction. Um, so we want to have low GI um, foods, low um, carbohydrate intake. No, that's no, that's the wrong way to put it. Not necessarily low carbohydrate, but low processed carbs. Mm. And um, Ash, I think what you called it for was slow carbs, mm. which I think is a really good way to describe it. So things that have really low glycemic index that don't give you that um, blood sugar spike straight away when you have them, as little processing as possible. I normally suggest get your carbohydrates from your fruits, veggies, and salads. But if you are really insulin resistant, you may also, and when I say really insulin resistant, if you've got high like insulin levels, um, on fasting blood tests or you've got polycystic ovarian syndrome or you are struggling with your weight, you might want to consider having less fruit as well uh, because it can just be contributing to that overall sort of sugar load. Um, also making sure that you're not having other dietary triggers that could be things like fructose. Um, we do know that wheat and gluten can trigger that same response as well as can industrial seed oils. Um, making sure that you're having protein with each meal um, and that you're balancing that with some good quality fats as well. Fiber has been shown to really help to improve insulin sensitivity. But again, let's get that from our veggies and salads um, and nuts and seeds, for example. Um, exercise has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity, particularly weight-bearing exercise. Um, and just look at where those other ins um, inflammatory drivers might be in your life. So are you getting enough sleep? Um, are you under a chronic amount of stress? Uh, like Ash is tonight when she's talking about phthalates. <laughs> no, um, is there some sort of gut issue going on? Um, is there uh, hormonal imbalances or gut dysbiosis that can be driving that? Is there an unresolved infection um, somewhere in your system that needs to be taken care of, whether or not that sometimes it can be an oral infection, it can be a gut infection. Um, you know, those sorts of low-grade systemic infections can certainly drive all of that um, inflammatory response up, which then triggers insulin resistance and then the cycle, you know, starts all over again. Love it. What did I, what did I miss there? Nope, that's it. I think okay. for me, diet and exercise start there. Uh, when you eat your meals, how big those meals are, again, really helpful to understand if you can. We were talking before the podcast about uh, fasting and intermittent fasting. I think that's just a whole new realm. We're going to go another 20 minutes if we start talking about that. But yes. I, it will just sort of, I think, just cap it there because that's a, a really good place to, to close out with just some of those basic dietary changes. Start there. And then once you start to go down the rabbit hole, you're curious, you want to learn more, know more, then, of course, there's, you know, whole doorways are going to open to you in your understanding of chronic inflammation, of insulin resistance, and, of course, of blood sugar handling. So um, for me, I guess my, my take home tonight is there are typically no symptoms or very few symptoms of insulin resistance that can go for years and years that are unnoticed. So by the time we get to that point of having symptomology, then we've really gone too far. So I'm encouraging women, if you're listening to this, get tested, get checked, consider your diet and lifestyle choices and consider the possibility if we can manage chronic inflammation, then we are so much more resilient, more resistant to the challenges the world's going to throw at us. 
perfect. Uh, what a good ending point. But I also just want to give a plug to go back <laughs> yeah. and listen to the podcast episode we did specifically on insulin resistance. Yeah. Okay. So Love ladies, it. you have been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the Wellness Women, Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston. We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.